Chemistry Podcast. My name is Deepthi and today we have a guest with us um, and this is really great because for the first time in our podcast, short podcast history, we have someone who's here to talk to us about contemporary South Asian culture. And here with us today is Shilpa Menon. She is a PhD student at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Hi everyone. Uh, thanks Deepthi for having me at Masala History. This is a great opportunity to speak oh, about my work. It's, it's going to be fun. So uh, Shilpa actually works on queer cultures in South India. I think I got the word right. <laughs> so, um, and her work really looks at um, a vast array of um, practices, both historical and contemporary, um, around uh, South India mainly. Um, and today she is going to actually talk talk to us about a little bit about one particular aspect of it, which is female impersonation. Um, in South Asia, within both theater, TV, and film, um, and of course, in, in real life, right? So um, today we're going to talk a little bit in detail about what um, kinds of female impersonation exist, uh, what are the complexities of this, and I feel like this is particularly relevant because this March is Women's History Month, and so it is really interesting to have someone talk to us about not just women, but people impersonating women in for different reasons. And this is also important because as Shilpa and I were talking about this just earlier, uh, we talk a lot about feminism, and I know that's a curse word for many in South Asia generally, <laughs> but uh, we also talk about, we need to think about feminism as more inclusive. And so part of the work that Shilpa does is very important in this context to um, see feminism as broader than just issues of women. Um, so without further ado, um, let's uh, start um, this podcast episode. Oh, but before we do, we need to talk about how you can find show notes and references to everything that we talk about today on our website, which is www.masalahistory.com. We are also on Instagram at, as, at masala underscore history, and we also have a Facebook page. So please subscribe to either to our website or follow us on Facebook for continued updates whenever the episodes come out. All right. Um, Shilpa, can you start with telling us about what what female impersonation is for those of us who are not familiar with that concept. Sure. Thanks, Deepti. So um, female impersonation quite specifically is um, a practice followed in various performance forms that could be dance, theater, ritual theater, dance theater. So in, in South Asia, all of these various forms, you know, are um, found together in yeah. specific cultures, right? Um, so female per impersonation is a particular practice where people who are perceived as men socially uh, these people perform or represent uh, women uh, in performance forms. Right. Um, and female impersonation is a very widespread practice in South Asia, and historically it's been very widespread. Um, and um, yeah, so there's, it is interesting because, particularly because it was so widespread, mm -hmm. because imagine a time when all of these uh, women's roles in these performance forms are being played not by female actresses or actresses perceived as women, but by people perceived as men. Yeah. Um, and that that in itself is, uh, you know, is 
evokes some sort of curiosity mm-hmm. um and one wonders why and yeah. how and all of that and there's there are a lot of rich histories and um narratives uh, behind that um, right. prevalence yeah um i know you talk a little bit when we discussed this earlier about the different faces by which these female impersonations go through and it's really fascinating because um because of its such a long history within um south asia and in many ways i when i started reading up i kind of uh, thought this was going to be more about um the nationalist ideals the whole bharat mata um you know fee, fee, the female as the country and therefore as perfect you know that it starts over there that was my imp- impression but then of course in the back of the mind i knew that there were female impersonators before the time as well mm-hmm. but then it is when i started reading for this podcast that i realized that there's like a vast and rich history mm-hmm. of very um intercultural but also um layered mm-hmm. uh, kind of female impersonations yes. and for very different reasons yes so maybe uh, could you break that down for us like what mm-hmm. kind of impersonations happened of course and um why why did everyone practice mm-hmm. or performance practice female impersonation right so uh, the first thing to note is that female impersonation was far more a, a far more common practice than male impersonation right. that is the other way around where you know people right. actresses or performers perceived as women uh, channeled the roles of right. men yeah. both existed but female impersonation was very widespread oh, right yeah. um and there is the whole so when we talk about femininity in south asia the at least in scholarly literature the idea of nationalism and the idea right, of bharat mata yeah. is very very prominent um and sure in the history of female impersonation to colonialism and the nationalist backlash to that mm-hmm. those produced very important paradigm shifts right. in in the practice of female impersonation but as you said the history of female impersonation is goes back a long long way um so you can so there are several different performance cultures and here i will be pulling in a few examples from the north and the south although my uh, area of specialization is south india but there have been various historical records in uh, pre colonial and early colonial times when a lot of these practices were um dominated by women themselves there were female performers mm-hmm. like if you look at the tawaifs or the devdasis right. they are the most widely studied examples of uh women constituting classes right. uh, uh around these performance cultures mm-hmm. right um but you see that beginning between the 17th and the mid 20th centuries you see that these classes of women who themselves uh portrayed female characters in performance they are sort of eclipsed by very very popular uh, and even celebrity like um, uh, figures who mm-hmm. were female impersonators right. um so they were um you know understood to be men um and then began to take on um the roles of women in you know urban theater um and you also find at certain very early forms like kathakali which mm-hmm. is a so, sort of sanskritic theater in kerala mm-hmm. right they also have men play women characters yes yeah. yes and the practice continues to date although women have slowly started making inroads right. into the culture um but what is most interesting is uh, this period between the 17th and mid 20th centuries when it becomes a very mainstream practice mm-hmm. um and it it becomes 
uh, very widely acceptable in urban theater in mm. theater catering to the bourgeois or the middle classes and mm. the upper classes to see uh, men uh, assaying the roles of women mm. uh, but if you look at present day south asia you find that the practice only persists in niches so at some yeah. point you see That's an true. eclipse of those practices yeah. Um, one of the things that I wondered as I was, um, as we were speaking just now, was about how um, historically these these kind of impersonations they came to be quite um, fashionable in that sort of colonial mm-hmm. era. Mm-hmm. Um, later colonial, like high colonialist era, and where that gender roles, you know, took, took on those Victorian mm-hmm. uh, sort of imagery where, like, you know, women were meant to be a certain way, right. they were meant to dress, act mm-hmm. with certain kinds of etiquette, mm-hmm. and therefore that popularity of the mm-hmm. um, male person, in, you know, impersonating a female actress mm-hmm. on screen became all the more popular because that meant that those gender norms were being maintained somehow mm-hmm. in real life mm-hmm. while on stage they could be mm-hmm. you know they could be crossed over right um and and i'm i'm also interested in knowing like when did that practice exactly mm-hmm. sort of give give up because mm-hmm. um i it's not with nationalism or it's not with independence that actually that practice goes away right or is mm-hmm. it so um so it's it's not uh, easy to put an exact date and in fact the uh, the exact dates where the the practice of female impersonation sort of becomes sidelined that changes from area to area so if you look at Catherine Hansen's work she's probably the only scholar to have done such extensive work on the practice of female impersonation um she uh, points out that you know say in Calcutta uh, the female impersonators were replaced by actresses in mm-hmm. as early as the 1870s um yeah so and in other places it took longer mm-hmm. in parsi theater um and i believe in marathi theater it took a little longer for female uh, impersonators to become uh, replaced by actresses yeah. and uh, and now it's a mainstream practice for actresses to just you can't imagine in say no, a commercial yeah. cinema yeah. that uh, uh a person who is understood to be a man will come and play the heroine or right. the actress but this was perfectly normal and in fact preferable like uh, theater companies prefer to hire female impersonators um in 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 many regions well until the 1920s 30s even 1950s i believe um so you see that this shift is different in different places yeah. um and a lot of it has to do with the various shifts that happened in colonialism yeah. and the nationalist response to that so uh Catherine Hansen for example says that um a lot of this waning a lot of the fact that uh, female impersonators uh, went out of demand mm-hmm. in mainstream theater and sort of the practice continued in more rural or peri urban forms that were now considered working class vulgar low culture and so on but in urban theater that catered to mainstream classes uh, the rather the more powerful classes um it sort of went out of um practice mainly because of uh a change in bourgeois aesthetics okay. uh, realism becomes a preferable mode of um you know in in theater yeah. uh, which means that you know oh a man dressing up as a woman would sort of violate those right. codes yeah. and another factor is uh, heteronormativity right yeah. the idea that it was immoral to have men performing as women mm-hmm. you have increasingly these uh 
this idea that masculinity belongs to men and femininity belongs to women not to say that it began at this time yeah. but it began to be asserted in performance theater at, at this time yeah it's also interesting because it kind of parallels what uh, what happens within the british colonialist period mm-hmm. especially um, in that chapter that you um, asked me to read on uh, about hansen's work mm-hmm. um, she mentions how these female impersonators were first replaced by anglo indian actresses mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. there was also a power hierarchy where yes. the mostly male audience mm-hmm. of like an urban mm-hmm. indian audience could in fact think about these anglo-indian women mm-hmm. as uh, as both like a power play with mm-hmm. uh, their european colonial overlords but right. here like that power hierarchy is reversed because they mm-hmm. are the consumers and the spectatorial pleasure mm-hmm. is Um, of the Anglo-Indian woman, right? right, right. Um, and that I found fascinating, and I feel like part of it is this is me hypothesizing, mm-hmm. but like once the independence is achieved, mm-hmm. and I feel like those those kind of power hierarchies are not necessary anymore mm-hmm. because the Europeans are out of the picture, mm-hmm. and now you could just have males who are hypermasculine and right. females who are hyperfeminine, and mm-hmm. you know. Yes, that heteronormative society is as it is. Exactly. Um, perhaps you could, because we did talk about mm-hmm. this. Perhaps you could um, maybe explain in brief, mm-hmm. like what kinds of different, like the the kind of complexity of gender mm-hmm. and gender associations mm-hmm. um, that's prevalent, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe talk about the the relationship between. gender mm-hmm. gender performativity mm-hmm. and um you know sort of right. male yeah. female and everything the spectrum in between yes yes so um so the, one of the main reasons that people you know commonly give for the you know waxing and waning of female impersonation in south asia is that south asia is very patriarchal mm-hmm. and uh, for the longest time the public performing woman was taboo it was mm-hmm. taboo for female bodies to be seen in non cloistered public spaces yeah. and become like a, a, a be seen as an object of desire yeah. in these spaces uh, unless of course you're specifically supposed to be objects of desire yes yes yeah. and as we know it is an and it perhaps it's good to talk about this at the outset you cannot talk about uh, the history of female performance without talking about the history of mm-hmm. female impersonation so this mm-hmm. is a point that uh, anna morkum makes in her book um uh, uh indian worlds of illicit dance um so she she makes this point that the histories of female impersonation female performance are very intricately connected so as you mentioned this it's around at the same time that anglo indian women come into the picture um that devdasis and tawives start being seen as prostitutes and mm-hmm. not as performers yeah. they start becoming sidelined becoming pathologized in many ways um and it is around uh, at this time that um um female impersonators take over mm-hmm. and then even when they go out of the picture you and by the time they are out of the picture you find that tawais and devdasis have completely been eclipsed as yeah. uh, you know figures in uh, as yeah. active figures in yeah. in performance uh, cultures in india so they are closely tied the fates of female impersonators and female performers are closely tied yeah. um so and often in an inversely inversely qualified way where yeah. like you know the, the popularity of female impersonators meant actually that you know the dissolution of the culture of devdasis and tawives as performers yes. and the reinstating of them you know re mm-hmm. 
you know reformulating them as actually mm-hmm. prostitutes mm-hmm. so yeah. and and that continues to this day like yes. you know the popular sort of notions of the wives yeah. and um devdasis are tied to desire and yeah. that to very sort of heteronormative desire mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and also about thinking of the like any of these movies that you take like you know there is that erotic angle mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. devdasi and the wives yes. uh, characters mm-hmm. so it's fascinating that mm-hmm. it actually happens because of female impersonation in yes. a way yeah so a uh, one very uh, powerful explanation is indeed that female impersonators came in to replace these taboo bodies mm-hmm. uh, especially right. when you know victorian model codes and gender yeah. roles were being reaffirmed and there were ideas certain ideas of propriety for yeah. women but you still needed women as objects of desire they mm-hmm. were important parts of what made performance um, attractive and appealing to people so you still need needed the representation of femininity and and they, the femininity as an aesthetic is yeah. central to many many um south asian performance yeah, forms yeah. um so you find that um female impersonators come in and take over the dominant female roles in say urban theater forms mm-hmm. um and this is not to say that this meant that women were completely pushed out of the picture mm-hmm. so in fact there is a lot of writing critiquing that kind of a simplistic narrative what we find that uh find is that women continue to play subordinate roles mm-hmm. they would um they would you know sing for um performances they would play dasi roles yeah, or the uh, the, roles. the servant or the side heroine roles that yeah. continue to yeah. survive even yeah. in modern cinema actually yeah. so um they they were present but yeah. they were not preferred which makes the case of female impersonators even more intriguing so they were not just uh, replacements they were actively preferred and understood to be better than women themselves in portraying femininity yeah. yes yes yeah. um i also um wanted to kind of talk to you about um uh, the idea of transgender mm-hmm. performers mm-hmm. right um and how that performance the way that we kind of think about them is if not wrong it's certainly erroneous in many ways mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you know to 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 a great extent mm-hmm. so um perhaps you know can you talk a little bit about uh, maybe uh, transgender performers mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to female impersonators because mm-hmm. transgender performance and performers have also an equally rich and long history mm-hmm. in the subcontinent in south asia as the female impersonators perhaps even a longer yes. um history so maybe you can touch upon that a little bit oh yes so <clears throat> this is is this this is an issue that's kind of complex because then it throws light so the paradigm within which we have understood female impersonators has changed so there right. was a time when i the idea that you could have different gender identities and sexual identities was not part of mainstream even academic thinking mm-hmm. so usually when female impersonators were studied they were understood as men enacting women yeah. um and as historical figures we don't have biographical or autobiographical uh, writing by any of these actors to e- even speculate about mm-hmm. what performing as women meant for them for right. their personal yeah. identities yeah. but now in today's times we're a lot more sensitive to question of identity uh, and thanks to lgbtq political mobilization we have a heightened understanding of what it means to um uh, carry masculinity and femininity within the same body uh, in 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 a in a 
spectrum of ways. Yeah. Um, so when when you so transgender is a very historically specific modern term, mm-hmm. uh, and it it'll definitely be inaccurate to refer to all female impersonators as transgender performers. Right. And this is a popular tendency yeah. uh, to just conflate the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it it would be wrong beyond a point. Um, Can we sort of give a definition of what transgender mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. and within the context of South Asia, if mm-hmm. not India, mm-hmm. how does transgender perhaps differ from the hijra community, for example, mm-hmm. or from other uh, marginalized um, mm-hmm. gen- gender groups? Right. Uh, so the hijra, so often there are people in the hijra community who claim the transgender label for mm-hmm. themselves who understand themselves to be transgender uh, but uh, the fact is that the term hijra and the identification associated with it has a very separate history from the right. term transgender so transgender originated in the west and yeah. now and has you know uh, become prevalent in india as well mm-hmm. as part of identity politics and the global influence of mm-hmm. these kinds of politics uh, which is not to say that transgender and hijra are completely different or are easily conflatable. They have complex histories and often we find that um, hijra individuals take on the identity of transgender. Mm -hmm. So hijra individuals uh, or hijra communities have had a very long history in South Asia. Mm -hmm. They are usually individuals who form communities who are socially perceived as men, Mm -hmm. but they uh, take on uh, the uh, dressing and the identities of women um and they mean uh, many of them may just wish to be known as hijras and may distinguish themselves from being women there are many who will want to be perceived as women so it is complex um but what one can say for sure is that hijras have a very long uh history History in south asia yes um i'm also it's very problematic when like you know the in india they refer to as the third gender yes um, yes because it's it, it, it it's again cataloging yeah. like you know this man woman and then something yes. anything else like you know it's like yes yes sort of bucket for anything else that comes your way exactly there's a it's very interesting to sort of parse out those kind of nuances, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. especially when when talking about that spectrum within with, you know, we mm-hmm. can, you, can, you can talk about gender and gender identities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so that is uh, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to also talk about uh, a little bit more about um, how the performances actually differ. Like mm-hmm. we talked that there are a variety of different kinds of performances that use female impersonation. Um, can you just point out some of them? Uh, mm-hmm. for Because I don't think a lot of us would know about um, these unless, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because we, we don't, I don't think I've seen many. Yeah. I mean, of course, there's Kathakali mm-hmm. that you see. Some yeah. of the Kudiyatam performances, you mm-hmm. know, would, mm-hmm. would have the same um, kind of yes. female impersonations within them. Um, but I don't think I've ever seen like a dramatic play no, that has a, yeah. fema- a man impersonating a woman in it. Yeah. So maybe you can just uh, give us a few examples. Of course. So today what we would see as like folk performance traditions and by folk we mean that they are considered as not modern. These are often like derogatory associations mm-hmm. with folk. Uh, but 
performance forms that thrive more outside of the mainstream space of, you know, uh, institutionalized stages and performance setups, right? Um, so there is Jatra that is um, prevalent in Bengal and parts of Odisha, if I'm not wrong, uh, where, um, you know, uh, people perceived as men, you know, channel the character of um, women. And in fact, Chapal Bhaduri is uh, a surviving doyen of that mm-hmm. art form. And he uh, still plays the role of... Um, Sita, I believe, in in a uh, in his performances, um, and there is also there are also more um, sidelined, way more marginalized forms like Londa Notch. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not to conflate it with uh, female impersonation, uh, but uh, there are also forms where uh, young men or mm-hmm. people perceived as young men uh, socially, effeminate men, maybe. Yeah, they're they're usually uh, perceived as effeminate men as well. And they take on the clothing and uh, uh, the, you know, aesthetic uh, expressions of of a female performer and perform in weddings and so on and so forth. Um, So, and this is practiced largely in, you know, North, uh, Northwestern India, Mm -hmm. I believe. Um, And uh, there are more... um, modern forms um so uh, susan sizer an anthropologist has done work on special drama in tamil nadu uh, which is again a more folk kind of art form that used to be very mainstream mainstream company theater but sort of went through a phase where it became relegated to peri-urban areas with the advent of television and stuff uh, but there too you will find both male and female impersonation um so it's there are there are all of these uh performance forms that are now hidden to the gaze of the average um you know art appreciator yes yes you will definitely not find them in tv except you know in gangs of wasepur uh, for example there is one song where uh, a londa notch dance is portrayed oh yes 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 uh so it it's it's uh it's only very rarely and as objects of, you know, you know, voyeuristic, uh, some sort of exoticized, like, yes. you know, um, peri-urban or small town. Yes. Yes. You know, life. Exactly. They, they present them. Yeah. And they're shown as a sort of relic of times past, despite the fact that they are very thriving cultures. And yeah. then there are people like, uh, Anirudha Datta who are writing about Londa Notch culture and Anna Morcom talks about it too. Um, they, they are sidelined from mainstream media, but they are still, thriving cultures Um, and yeah so these are a few of the examples in Bharatnatyam for example uh, the practice yeah yeah, the practice is uh, there is work on how Bharatnatyam at the same time that it became from you know Bharatnatyam from Sadir Kacheri so it transformed it It, and this is there's a lot of work on this it it became a more mainstream upper middle class art form as opposed Mm -hmm. to a Devdasi art form right and it sort of um, it became more uh, what is that Uh, more palatable to the moralities of the middle class Um, it was um, something more cultural yes and I guess it became more Sanskritized yeah yeah yeah. it became inducted into uh, high culture effectively Uh, and it is at the same time that the practice of men portraying feminine roles and feminine gestures was also uh, on On the the wane yeah Yeah. so they began to bring in the idea of Nataraja the idea of Shiva as a masculine figure and introduced explicitly masculine performance forms for men so you see the slowly the idea that you know it, it's not just that femininity is an aesthetic form that can be associated with anybody mm-hmm. but now you have stricter ideas of what kind of bodies can uh, you know 
perform what kind of roles right. uh so you, you so you see these various examples and the shifts that they've gone through yeah. um i also uh, am curious about the different types of female impersonation so obviously as you talked about there is a lot of uh, folk art and theater mm-hmm. theater impersonations that we talk about mm-hmm. and we haven't really touched upon the fact that there are female impersonations within temple rituals oh, yes. you know mm-hmm. um, within mm-hmm. um, you know whether it's like the bhagavati cults mm-hmm. um, in mm-hmm. in kerala or um, you know other kinds of performances mm-hmm. where it is a male that becomes the the man that become impersonates and becomes uh, mm-hmm. the goddess right yeah yeah, yeah. to to so- give one example yes. so how is that impersonation how is the female impersonation within ritualistic spaces or mm-hmm. ritualistic practices right. in south asia different from or similar to um, these kind of theatrical performances that's a great question so um, maybe now is a time to parse what impersonation means okay, so uh, impersonation often carries the idea that it's um, faking you know there is a real and then you take on something that is not real mm-hmm. right so th- there is an implicit distinction between what is real and then what is taken on mm-hmm. uh, and that's kind of fundamental to impersonation yeah. and in its common use impersonation is a crime right yeah. in legal language if you're impersonating someone you get arrested yeah and it's the taking on of something right? yes of yeah, something that's the definition yes of something that is understood to be different from you yeah. if you're doing if you are um enacting yourself or it is understood as the same as the self yeah. then it's not impersonation right. so there is a self other distinction coming mm-hmm. in here um and that can become a problem when you're talking about the various kinds of impersonation out there and what what these performance cultures mean to the performers that um practice them right uh so for example people who would now identify as transgender who uh Uh, who are parts of these performance cultures uh, they may not like to be called impersonators mm-hmm. uh, for them their performance is a natural extension of the femininity that is part of their identity right, right? um so yeah so the term impersonation itself carry certain implications yeah. so coming to the bhagavati cult and the idea of temple based or uh, ritualistic uh, performances um one example is the velichapada in kerala right. or the komaram as they call it so where a male bodied person becomes an oracle for the goddess mm-hmm. so these are instances of oracle form. meaning somebody who <coughs> imbibes the divine within themselves yes yes and these are instances more of possession than impersonation um because impersonation carries with it, the idea that you are acting you are enacting mm-hmm. um and or you are representing but possession can be understood a little differently as you becoming someone else you um you know Im- imbibing the spirit of a uh, divine being uh so there is a small distinction i mean there's an important but subtle distinction there uh but even otherwise there are performance forms related to the temple space where um uh male bodied people do enact femininity mm-hmm. and uh, for the longest time it was understood that women are not uh, good vessels to enact divinity mm-hmm. or to uh, uh, to become 
oracles they yeah. were not to embody divinity yeah. because there were ideas of impurity associated yes. with the female body we were just reading um, an article by sarah caldwell mm-hmm. from a book called is the goddess a feminist mm-hmm. in my class uh, mm-hmm. this class i'm teaching and it was about the bhagavati practices and mm-hmm. how women have too much heat in them mm-hmm. and so therefore they can't yeah um you know take on more heat of the bhagavati like yeah, you know, yeah. bhagavati god so men have to do it yes yes so there are several uh, cultural logics that are employed in different performance forms they sound different mm-hmm. but usually they run along the lines of women's bodies are impure or weak uh, or unsuitable in general for these kind of or, or you know they cannot be trained extensively they cannot go through the ritual practices that may extend in well into the you know well beyond a month which would mean that you know they will be menstruating at the yeah. time so a lot of these logics are employed to uh, sort of um, ensure that women are kept out of these spaces uh, so it is within the space of um, you know patriarchal oppression also that these practices come in um, but there is also a case to be made for not just seeing this as you know oppression as um, men taking over from women um, because a lot of different kinds of practices thrived within um, these performance cultures their women were present uh, there were a lot of dynamics apart from just gender mm-hmm. um, involved often they were caste dynamics right, of course, in yeah. many cases you find that the bodies of lower caste men uh, replace the bodies of upper caste women who are now you know vessels of honor yeah. um and so there are multiple dynamics and if you if you think of gender as just about being a man or a woman you sort of um erase these different kinds of narratives that are right. out there um the other question that we kind of briefly discussed this before um we started recording uh, about the homoerotic contents mm-hmm. within uh, or the homoerotic desire that sort of masked in these female impersonations mm-hmm. you touched upon that mm-hmm. i think um and and right now also when you think about like lower caste men mm-hmm. taking the place of upper caste women mm-hmm. who are so honorable that they shouldn't be mm-hmm. a spect- spectatorially pleas- mm-hmm. giving pleasure to other men right right yes. so um and i haven't really figured this out so maybe you can um explain what happens like n- most of these female impersonators think of themselves as straight mm-hmm. men mm-hmm. right um or some variation of it some of them do identify themselves as um gay or mm-hmm. um somewhere in between mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right um but what happens is in this larger scheme of the scholarship the idea of uh, homoeroticism mm-hmm. as associated with female impersonation is not really talked about or at mm-hmm. least has, from what i've read it has not been talked about right. so why is that mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. and then b is is that is that something uh, is that an important part of this conversation on female impersonation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what about the men who impersonate you know mm-hmm. and what about their own mm-hmm. emotions and mm-hmm. their bodies and how they perceive of their emotions and bodies right. is the question i think right oh yeah uh, that's uh, so as i said earlier there has been a sort of paradigm shift now we have um you know so female impersonators are not just understood within a historical context now we have started thinking about their identity as mm-hmm. well right um and one reason for uh, homoeroticism not being explored adequately is that a lot of these works um are from the 1990s and before um 
where in, even within academia, these mm-hmm. ideas were not explored uh, adequately. Mm-hmm. Um, and now they are a lot more mainstream mm-hmm. to talk about gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. So increasingly people are doing, apart from just looking at historical documents, mm-hmm. they're looking at living cultures of impersonation, which means you can go speak to these actors and ask them about what this means for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I myself did work with some, uh, a few, a group of such actors in Kerala who uh, um, you know, perform as women in um, comedy reality shows. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you find that um, now there is greater space to talk about their identities. So the 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 people you interviewed for from the comedy reality shows mm-hmm. are they men or do they identify themselves as heterosexual men? Mm-hmm. So this is so this is actually. Uh, and since time immemorial, female impersonators have evoked these questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at writings about female impersonators, there are experiences of audiences. The first thing they're thinking is, they look so much like women. What are mm-hmm. they? Because these are bodies that are, you know, breaking gender codes, performing across gender yeah. norms. Uh, and immediately they become the object of either voyeuristic curiosity or like you know moral censure They're, or ridicule or ridicule yes uh, um, but if you if you look at the uh, period uh, when female impersonation was a mainstream form they uh, they were not really objects of ridicule but it was considered perfectly normal even then there there was a lot of discussion and curiosity around the capacity of these you know, perceived as male actors to pass as women and not just women, beautiful, attractive, idealized women. Right. right? Other high class women could emulate, which I found really interesting. Yes, yes. If you look at Bal Gandharva in Marathi theater, for example, he brought in so many, um, you know, uh, gestures, forms of dressing and comportment that were in fact imitated by bourgeois women of the time. And I wanted to uh, also sort of interject here that this was a practice that was common in other cultures as well. Mm-hmm. Like the Kabuki theater yes. in um, Edo period Jap- uh, Japan mm-hmm. actually had men who were impersonating women mm-hmm. and women were not part of the Kabuki theater's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, entertainment. Mm-hmm. But also if you think about Shakespearean dramas mm-hmm. much earlier than this, also yeah. the uh, women on stage were somehow... Mm-hmm. Um, a moral or not not the preferred yeah. way to you know conduct theat- you know with yourself within theatrical spaces so mm-hmm. this has a longer history and not just a history within south asia yeah. um but i'm i'm really surprised that these practices continue mm-hmm. um over the course of time and continue to this day mm-hmm. although the forms have kind of changed yeah um um i have a question about it you know just for the general public this is not drag mm-hmm. right Drag mm-hmm. has a tendency to yes. be seen as a positive mm-hmm. sort of engenderment of you mm-hmm. know uh, sexuality and gender right, identity right. and all that. But like you know, this is not that. Yeah. So there is there is a just um, because drag is a U.S. based form and it has gained a lot of um, you know popularity because 
of the tendency for US culture to be exported worldwide. Uh, there is a tendency for all kinds of female impersonation to just be compared to drag. So the first thing we need to do here is to understand that drag is a very contextualized form of performance, mm-hmm. uh, where usually, although not always, uh, people who identify as men, uh, largely gay men, take up the roles of um, you know drag queens. Mm-hmm. And th- these are not roles of women per se. Yeah. It's a different aesthetic altogether. Right. Cool. Uh, it, it's a role of, um, you know, it, it's a certain style of feminism femininity uh, and what they're aiming at is not the uh, you know realistic emulation of women at all right so it, it has a whole other history to it that is um, not exactly the same as female impersonation in South Asia uh, and drag is also associated with uh, queer identity politics mm-hmm. with uh, gay and transgender identification um, but in India, it, uh, it's many of them still consider it to be just professions mm-hmm. uh, that may or may not be associated with, with their, their identities. identities. Yeah, yes, so they may identify. So there is also this um, this voyeurism continues. The first thing we want to ask is: Are you transgender? Are you uh, like? X what or Y. Are you? Like, what you know, you, yeah. it, it is the it is the categorization that is important. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. to be able to define them as something is more important than yes. you know, just the experience of watching these performances also. Exactly. And that hasn't changed. Yes. And and there's also a, uh, for example in Kerala with these actors, they are just uniformly labeled as uh, transgender. Uh, whereas that is not something all of them uniformly identify mm-hmm. as. For some of them they identify as cis men. That mm-hmm. is, you know, men who are not trans men. Uh, and they uh, enacting femininity is a profession for them. Uh, so it by you know and even so female impersonation that term is uh, offensive to those who might who among those performers who might, who might identify as transgender so you find right, that of course yeah but yeah. then they both are working in the same sort of field Space, yeah um and so while yeah. what they do is the same mm-hmm. the way they approach it is entirely different yes and and this this is another thing that makes it distinct from drag drag is understood as a certain community of mm-hmm. people um but there's a lot more diversity in uh you know any given south asian art form it's right. not necessarily tied to a particular uh, gender or sexual identity right. um although some performance forms are uh so the the point here is that um, any term that we use, even in academic literature, mm-hmm. to understand these practices, try to make sense of these, you know, unstable performances. Mm-hmm. They they even when we call someone female impersonators, there, there is probably a need to come up with a more capacious term to understand right, yes. what these people are doing mm-hmm. that doesn't make assumptions about their identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it it's also part of the understanding that these are not historical figures that we can speculate about. Mm-hmm. They are still part of thriving living cultures right. and they are yes. people, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, although we're using the term female impersonation and it's widely identified, um, there is probably a need to think of it think differently. Think about it, diversify the term itself, to yeah. think about it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, just to wrap things up here, mm-hmm. um, can you give us a few examples of famous uh, female impersonators um, uh, that perhaps we can hmm? you know, Google search and learn more about? Of course. So... Um, so there, there are these performers in comedy reality shows uh, in Kerala, and although they are not as famous as, say, Bal Gandharva from Marathi theatre or Jai Shankar Sundari, uh, 
of, I believe, Parsi theater. Um, and these are a few performers that Catherine Hansen mentions. Um, and the performers I worked with are lower caste, marginalized men who do not gain celebrity status for precisely these wow. reasons. Uh, but those like uh, Bal Gandharva were, uh, I believe, dominant caste men um, who could lay claim to some kind of professionalism because of their position in society. Um, and there is also um, uh, the Kuchipudi um, Doyen um, Vedantam Satyanarayana Sharma. Mm-hmm. So you have uh, Harshita Kamath writing about it in her upcoming book, Impersonations, where she talks about how female impersonation is used to um, consolidate Brahminical authority. Um, oh, wow. So what we usually find is that female impersonators are seen as marginalized figures mm-hmm. and often they are from marginalized uh, social groups from castes and uh, classes that are uh, usually historically oppressed. Uh, But there are cases like Kuchipudi where uh, the impersonation is carried out by uh, Brahmin men from rural areas. And in this case, the village of Kuchipudi in Andhra Pradesh. Um, So Vedantam Satyanarayana Sharma is one example and he's a very widely respected figure in Kuchipudi. Uh, And there is Chapal Baduri from Jatra, as I mentioned. Um, And in Kerala, there is a very uh, little known figure called Ochira Velukuti who was the equivalent of perhaps Bal Gandharva in around the same period. Right. Um, he played a major role in the Malayalam theatre renaissance. And this was in sort of early 20th century, right? Or yes, yeah. uh, early 20th century. Um, but there's very, very little written about him, unlike Bal Gandharva, whose life is very well documented. Um, if you actually want to learn more about Ochira Velukuti, who's uh, from the imp- female impersonating artist from Kerala, um, Shilpa has a great blog about it on um, uh, on a very scholarly platform called Allah. Um, Allah means wave in Malayalam. Shilpa is also yes. the list editor now for this <laughs> wonderful place for uh, Kerala, uh, people to learn more about Kerala, the scholarship on Kerala now. Um, and the website to that is Allah. That's A-L-A dot Kerala Scholars dot org. Mm-hmm. Yes, Did that's right. That right. Okay. Yes. I want to repeat that again. That's A-L-A Allah dot kerala scholars dot org so go check out and i will provide the link to her blog on ochira velukuti also on our um show notes uh, show notes on our website mm-hmm. so do check that out as well mm-hmm. thank you Diti. um yeah so i think we're sort of wrapping up did you did you have anything to add to our conversation this has been really great mm-hmm. um this has actually been a learning experience for me because this is a topic that we, we are usually talking about historical <laughs> I mean, you were also talking a lot about historical actors, but mm-hmm. these are also contemporary um, mm-hmm. actors involved in these discussions. So mm-hmm. um, this has been a learning experience for me. So thank you for introducing us to your work and to the the very complicated and complex ways in which to look at female impersonators thank you Uh, thank you Deepthi and I would ask that uh, readers go and take a look at the show notes and read some of the articles written on this and perhaps we can start thinking about female performance as not just you know a history of female bodies but a lot of different kinds of uh, bodies and identifications yeah and to next time you see a Bharatanatyam performance to think of it not just as a performance by a beautiful girl, but to think of the history behind yes. how those, those performances actually come into being and take on the contemporary forms that we all mm-hmm. seem to enjoy mm-hmm. without really um, thinking through the complexities and of 
gender identities mm-hmm. and um, uh, uh, gender power parodies that mm-hmm. actually dictate the forms that these performances have taken mm-hmm. in like established forms like Bharatanatyam yes, right yes yes um so that's it from us at masala history uh, thank you again shilpa shilpa's thank you. work can be seen at uh, the website ala.keralascholars.org we're also going to see a more of her publications come out in the next few years as she's quickly writing her dissertation um if you want more of our episodes um i would say please head over to www.masalahistory.com and we are also on um apple podcasts so be sure to check us out there or subscribe